Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 67, The Italian Rebirth, Part 3. Last time, I finished the episode with a look at the life and secular plays of Giovanni Maria Cecchi, and particularly his comedies The Slave Girl and The Hooded Owl, the latter of which stands out alongside Machiavelli's The Mandrake as one of the best comedies of the period. Cecchi was from a family who had made their name serving the Medici, but when Cecchi was young the family had fallen out of favour and he had to make his own way on his own talents, which were many, and he became a successful public notary and then a businessman trading in wool. As a playwright of secular comedies and farce, he was prolific and successful. But as he grew older, he turned more to religious matters and wrote many plays in a sacred mode. To conclude Cecchi's story, we now need to look at these drami sacri. But don't think of them as serious sacred dramas. Comedy, it seems, was in Cecchi's DNA. And even as his religious convictions grew, he still saw comedy as a means to an end. Between 1558 and 1587, he wrote 30 sacred plays we know of, an output that rivalled his secular comic plays and farces, and there were probably more. His desire to write religious plays seems to have come from the sincerity of his own Catholic beliefs, but he wrote to order, fulfilling commissions for specific places and events. That might be the celebration of a saint's day, dedication of a church or cathedral, or the ordination of clergy, among others. Performances would usually be given by students or other amateurs in whatever space was appropriate, from churches to meeting halls to open plazas. This type of performance was not new to Florence, where a tradition of religious drama had been maintained since the days of the mystery plays, albeit at a reduced scale and with varying levels of enthusiasm from the church hierarchy as the years passed. Cecchi's plays were in verse, following a long-established tradition for religious drama, and generally dramatised a biblical episode or event from the life of a saint to give a single, strongly messaged moral lesson. He also produced some plays that were not based on biblical episodes, but were more romanticised tales where, for example, a chaste young woman would be saved from some peril to her person or her moral well-being by the miraculous appearance of Mary, mother of Jesus, or the saint in question as appropriate for the occasion. Cecchi was writing at the time of the Italian Counter-Reformation, which had begun with the Council of Trent initiated by Pope Paul III in 1545, and was not to end until more or less a century later with the European Wars of Religion. The Counter-Reformation combined several approaches initiated by successive popes in an attempt to push back the tide of Protestant influence. There was an apologetic strand, where attempts were made to address the more excessive behaviours of some of the clergy and abuses of power by bishops, the sort of reform that had the support from the masses. There was also a theological strand where the precepts of the medieval church were largely upheld and the role of the sacraments and the nature of transubstantiation in particular as the central sacrament was reinforced, with only small attempts at modernisation. The Mass was standardised in 1570 with the introduction of the Tridentine Mass, that's the traditional Latin Mass that stayed in use in the Catholic Church until 1962. Education of the clergy was addressed to enable the central message of the church to be distributed and argued effectively, and religious courts were established to punish infringements, the notorious Inquisition being the highest and most ruthless of these courts. On the Italian peninsula, the Protestant Reformation had less impact than in Northern Europe. 
The Italian church had retained more involvement by the laity than the Northern European church had, and there was generally less anti-clerical feeling to begin with. The Italian Inquisition was established very quickly and fought the Protestant advance into the peninsula very effectively, no doubt aided by the proximity and influence of the Pope and the Papal States. The most ardent reformers moved north and championed the Protestant cause in their new homes, or as exiles lobbing pamphlets from afar at a generally unresponsive Italian intelligentsia. The dukes and princes chose to look to their wealth and sided with the Pope and the established church. In addition to their secular position, many also carried profitable religious offices, such as cardinal or bishop in their region, and relinquishing these, and the possibility of facing a papal army, were enough to keep them on side. There was also an existential threat to the Italian states from the Holy Roman Empire, which was quickly becoming associated with the Protestant movement and further deterred any wholesale conversion. But as we have already heard, there were voices from the academic societies and lone individuals who were prepared to argue against Catholic edicts and policies and to satirise and poke fun at the church. Translations of the Bible were underway on a small scale, as we've heard, confined to local dialects, and it was not until 1603 that a mainstream, complete translation of the Bible was published. As the Catholic Counter-Reformation took hold in Italy, Cecchi's religious plays fell out of favour, flowing as they did against the tide of tightening rules and suppression of dissent. In 1574, Pope Gregory XIII banned religious plays, which was an edict that Archbishop Alessandro of Florence, another Medici, applied with vigour by prohibiting plays from being performed not only in, but anywhere near a place of worship. Cecchi added his voice to the group of playwrights who fought against this ban, and they found an unlikely ally in the Jesuit order, who continued to promote the use of drama as part of worship. Cecchi's religious dramas stand out from others because of his efforts to make them both acceptable and accessible. He continued to use comic elements in these plays and keep the message simple. These are not morality plays using allegorical figures, that type of theatre was never popular in the Italian states, but used light comedy and melodrama within the thread of a religious story. He also began to use blank verse rather than the traditional rhyming scheme, trying to appeal to a younger audience. This attempt to appeal to a youthful audience seems to have been very deliberate on his part. We can imply that he believed that the younger audience would accept this mix of styles he used to make a more serious form of comedy, or a lighter type of tragedy, depending on how you look at it. It was with this mix that he anticipates, and some would argue that he invented, the concept of tragicomedy. He sought a middle path between the noble characters in tragedy, typically brought low by monumental events, and the low characters in comedy, who appeared to revel in their own ignobility. A middle path, he seems to have concluded, will speak more broadly to the more youthful audience. The plays would still feature the noble and the highborn, even royalty, but also a cast of lower characters, not just as colourful background, but who also fulfilled major roles. He leant heavily on the typical characters he'd used in his comedies in previous years, but abandoned the unities of time and place. In some cases, like his 1570 play The Prodigal Son, he took a biblical parable, updated it and expanded it. In his version of the story, the action is moved from the Holy Land to contemporary Florence with the characters appropriately updated. The experience of The Prodigal Son is expanded to include encounters with the seven deadly sins, which are not represented by allegorical figures, but by specific characters who display one of the sins as a trait in their beliefs or actions, 
and do so with some comic flair. This is very different from the much more serious and much blander approach of the medieval morality play. In this particular case, the play is such an expansion of the original form of the parable that the original story, if not the message, is almost lost. Away from biblical tales, Chechi wrote The Death of King Achab, this in 1559, where the story of a king and his wife who set up a pagan cult is used to point out the errors of vain and overmighty kings and the detrimental effect that they can have on their innocent subjects. The range of settings used in the non-biblical plays to convey an overtly religious or more generally moral message is surprising. He was prolific, but this doesn't mean that he was content to repeat a formula. The diversity of the form and content of his religious plays does suggest a man who was always looking for new and surprising ways to inform, entertain and to challenge. And it's important to emphasise that element of entertainment. His last religious play, The Roman Woman, written in 1585, is an out-and-out farce, but still a vehicle for a moral lesson. For this, he borrowed again from Boccaccio. The story is set in contemporary Rome, where an English princess has been recently married to the King of France. In his absence, she learns that her mother-in-law is planning to kill her. She leaves Rome quickly and in secret, disguised as a nurse. The king returns to search for his wife, and in Rome he meets Claudio, a former courtier, who left France for the shame of an act of kindness by his friend Sempronio. Sempronio has taken the blame for a murder for which Claudio had been charged, but was in fact innocent. Claudio is now searching him out to make amends. Chance and fate repeatedly intervene and prevent resolution of these two quests, until both are resolved by the kinder hand of fate. The moral compass of the play comes not from the noble characters, but from the citizens of Rome, who are represented by various characters denoted by their trade and their mode of speech. Chechi was adept at making the speech of each character different enough to make them distinguishable from each other and the stock characters of the past. But most of all, he could write a play with a moral heart that was nevertheless a farce. Chechi explicitly saw farce as a worthy form in its own right. Since the Middle Ages, comedy had been held in low regard, base entertainment for the lowest in society. But Chechi believed that it could be so much more than that. In his prologue to The Roman Woman, he has to acknowledge that Aristotle did not classify farce, but then makes the argument for its high status when he says, Farce is a third new type of play between tragedy and comedy. It enjoys the breadth of both of them, and it escapes their narrow confines because it takes onto itself great lords and princes, which comedy does not do, and it also takes in, as if it were either an inn or a hospital, the masses, both the low and the plebeian, which Lady Tragedy never wants to do. Its actions are not restricted. It accepts happy events and sad ones, secular and ecclesiastical, urban, rural, dreadful and the pleasant. It takes no account of place. It forms its own stage, both in a church or in a square, or any place. It takes no account of time. Therefore, it does not finish in one day, but will take two or three. Yes, he really liked the form, and his plays were performed despite restrictions, so proves he has a point, I suppose, even if we might now think that his aspirations were a little overambitious. But credit where it's due. Like no one else of his time, he combined the moralistic tale with comedy and crafted plays that appealed to his audience for their humour, but never quite lost sight of their message. It was a subtle trick to pull off, and he did it repeatedly. 
He understood the contemporary theatre audience and crafted plays with a consistency that was unparalleled. He remained the most popular playwright in the Italian peninsula right up to his death after a brief illness in 1587 and was mourned in his local area where he had spent some of his wealth on charitable works, the restoration of local churches and the establishing of a small monastery. The works of Leon de Somi may well be better known than they are, but for the fact that most of his play scripts, poetry and prose, were destroyed in a fire at the National Library of Turin in 1904. This was a truly terrible event. It's thought that the shorting out of some electrical wiring was the initial cause, but the effect was a fire that took hold of buildings and destroyed about one-third of the 320,000 volumes held and countless manuscripts. Of 14 recorded plays by de Somi, only two survived the flames. This, quite obviously, is a great shame in itself, but doubly so from a historical point of view when we see that we lost the majority of the work of the first Jewish playwright in the European theatre tradition. He was born in Mantua in about 1525, which was a city with a large and prosperous Jewish population. The Duke of Mantua was more tolerant of the Jews than many in the Italian states, so it was the natural home for many, and numbers only increased when Pope Pius V expelled all the Jews from the Papal States in 1569. The Papal Bull that declared the expulsion of all Jews who would not convert to Christianity forced thousands to migrate to cities outside of the Papal States, with the exception of the slums of Rome and Verona, where the Bull was never applied. The instruction was rescinded by his successor Pope Gregory XIII, but the Jewish community continued to live under severe restrictions in the Papal States. Leone was born to a family of physicians and named Judas, or rather, given a name that once it was translated into Italian, became Judas. Given the negative connotations of the name, he changed it to reflect the lion, the symbol of the house of Judah. Little is known of his upbringing, but it seems likely that he served in the court of Ferrara as a young man, picking up a liking for the theatre and learning from the practitioners and writers there. Mantua had a thriving court itself, and a Jewish playing troupe that was established there in 1520 was frequently employed by the Duke to provide theatrical entertainment. Employed is perhaps the wrong term. The troupe had to fund the performances themselves, so the request from the Duke was really a form of taxation on the Jewish community. As a court entertainment, the production values were expected to be very high, much higher than would be the norm for a carnival play, and therefore expensive. In fact, under the Duke and then under his son, who was even more enthusiastic about showing off his wealth and power through lavish entertainments, the whole process became very formalised, with the troupe being run by a committee who commissioned work according to the Duke's request and dealt with the raising of money and creation of props and scenery and the like. On his return from Ferrara, de Somi slipped into the role of playwriting on these occasions, but also wrote for smaller, less lavish productions within the Jewish community. His comedy of the betrothal, written about 1550, so when he was still a young man, is one of those plays. It's in Hebrew and was written for a Jewish holiday celebration remembering the courage of Esther, the Jewish wife of a Persian king. The play is designed to be seen only by the Jewish community, not just because it's in Hebrew, but because of its intricate biblical references and inclusion of material referring to the Talmud. But for all that, it is still a Renaissance comedy, as this brief plot summary shows. A father leaves all of his wealth to his slave as he lies on his deathbed. 
His son, who is abroad, is left just the right to choose one article from the entire estate. The assumption of the father is that the son will have the sense to choose the slave for his property, as the law is that all property of a slave automatically becomes the property of its master. In the meantime, the slave will safely guard the inheritance in his absence. When the future in-laws of the son hear of this arrangement, they conclude that he has been disinherited and call off the wedding. Not to be deterred, the son returns and plans to seduce his former fiancée in a vineyard and thereby claim her as his wife under the Jewish law of marriage by intercourse. The rabbi solves the young man's predicament in a final scene that enables him to retain his inheritance, his good name and the woman he loves. But for the Jewish angle, this is pure Italian Renaissance comedy with its emphasis on the issues of the marriage market and criticisms of the behaviour of some of the community, in this case the Jewish community. Desomi almost certainly intended that this play should also show that Hebrew was a literary language, on a par with the great European tongues. For the court at Mantua, he became a director and choreographer of his own and other plays. When the old duke died and his son took over, the theatrical entertainments became even more lavish, and Desomi's skills in all aspects of production became known outside of Mantua. He visited other courts as a guest producer, but his ambition to build his own theatre outside of the influence of the court in Mantua came to nothing, as did his attempts to join the local academia. However successful his career was, he was still a Jew, and there came a point where that held him back. The closest he came to joining the ranks of the aristocrats of the academia was to be acknowledged as a writer of scripts for them, earning him a type of associate membership. If his surviving court comedy The Three Sisters is anything to go by, then we can be sure that he was not afraid to create a complex and fast-moving plot with a large cast of characters. In fact, this play has three plot strands, and I'm not even going to attempt to run through its complexities here. But for all of those complexities, it is expertly put together by a man who clearly understands how this type of theatre worked, no doubt the benefit of his extensive practical experience gained in Mantua and further afield. The plots are borrowed from other plays and, knowing references to other well-known works like Mandragola, are included in the text. What we would now think of as little Easter eggs that enabled the erudite courtly audience to enjoy their ability to recognise the references. The bawdy comedy of Mandragola is toned down in The Three Sisters, reflecting the changing moral climate of the Counter-Reformation. Just a quarter of a century later, these were very different times from Machiavelli's Florence, and in this case, de Somi clearly felt that he could not present the same amorality that Machiavelli was allowed. In the play, the seductions are enabled by the use of mandrake potion, and the attempts are ultimately unsuccessful, so the female would-be victims can be held as blameless, and the dignity of marriage, as de Somi puts it, can be preserved. But he was not afraid to push some boundaries. The play needs the frontage of six houses rather than the traditional three. Sadly, we don't have a record of how this was staged, but it has been speculated that some of the residences could have been painted on backcloths, with the working frontages presented protruding from the wings. The script suggests that all the house fronts needed to be used as entrances and exits, but fitting all six on stage would have involved some significant compromises, to an extent that that doesn't seem very practical either. He also used witchcraft and the casting of spells as a plot device, which was risky for its time. 
Although popular belief was very much that witches were alive and well and practising somewhere nearby, authorities tended to frown on its mention, and including it could have led to censure or worse, even when the actions exist in a comic context. Perhaps he was confident of the protection of the Duke from those who might want to take him to task over such blasphemous actions being presented in a play. Dosomi was only able to develop his theatre because of the indulgence of the Duke of Mantua, who spent vast amounts of money on entertainments for his court. It was a short, golden period, although perhaps not so much for those who were being subjected to ever greater taxation to fund the extravagance. But it did come to an end. As a financial and cultural centre, Mantua was already at the beginning of a long decline, and the Duke was eventually persuaded to reduce his expenditure, and Mantuan theatre was never quite the same again. In addition to his plays, Dasomi also left a guide to stage productions called Four Dialogues, in which he describes not only the process of production, but of writing too. He describes how when creating a play, he has the physical layout of the stage clearly in his mind, and how he notes each scene, and the characters that appear in it, in an elaborate plan before he starts on writing the dialogue. He had the ability to map things mentally, so that he knew exactly where a character had to be to be seen or to be unseen, as the story dictated, or where all the characters have to be while one vaults through a window or climbs a balcony. In his planning, he then broke each scene into individual moments of action, and like a chess grandmaster, seems to have had the ability to see where each character, and in Three Sisters there are 17 characters, has been, is now, and will be going in a choreographed dance. Perhaps when he was referred to in court documents as a choreographer, this is what was meant. But what comes out most from the work of De Simone is the fact that he was a man of the theatre, a practical man of live action, who recognised that plays came to life through the actors who performed them. He said in his four dialogues that it is far more essential to get good actors than a good play. Because his plays are not known for realistic characters or simple plots, they rely very much on the skills of the actors to make them accessible and to pull out from the writing the things that make his work both entertaining and different. But theatre and theatrical innovation was not only contained to northern Italy. To the south, in the city and the state of Naples, more serious subjects were taken on by Giambattista della Porta. Born in 1535 and writing plays from the last quarter of the 14th century until his death in 1615, his plays are more tragicomedy than farce and veer towards the sentimental. Only half of his 30 plays have survived, and these show a heavy reliance on Plautus and Boccaccio for plot and cross-dressing for entertainment value. The rather more sombre tone of his plays is now seen as a precursor to the type of theatre more strongly taken up by the French, where comedy with tears became common. Similar plays were written by his contemporary Giordano Bruno. The Candlemaker, from 1582, was his best work in a small canon. He was a philosopher and theologian who fell foul of the Inquisition and was burned at the stake when he was about 50 years old. A reminder that these were still dangerous times for free thinkers. Della Porta was an ordained Dominican, but radical in his outlook. The Candlemaker is a visceral attack on corruption in society. The title uses a euphemism of the time for a sodomite, and the main character preys on both boys and young women alike. Magic is used to entice the object of his lust to his bed, 
but he in turn is tricked into sleeping with his own wife instead, who then runs into the arms of her lover. A three-stranded plot of bed-hopping, which Delaporta expounds with a huge dose of sarcasm, leaves us in no doubt as to the immorality of the characters and what the playwright thinks of them. That the writing of dramatic comedy was at the heart of intellectual activity in the Italian Renaissance is evidenced by the many playwrights for whom plays were a sideline to other artistic, philosophical, political or scientific activity. This list of names is far too long and meaningless to engage with here, but the evidence is that being a comic dramatist was a respected part of an artist's or academic's cultural life. This was a type of regard that has not often been replicated since. That, unfortunately, does not mean that all or even many of these plays are of sufficient interest to detail here. Many are straightforward rewrites of Plautus and Terence, and even those that stretch further are repetitive, copying the contemporary playwrights that I've already mentioned. Many of the plays were written in local dialects and produced with a very special local, often the courtly, audience in mind. These factors prevented the development of a truly national theatre on the Italian peninsula. However, we have to recognise that it is the best of these plays that have a huge influence on Elizabethan playwrights in England and on Moliere in France somewhat later. The Sacred Plays of Cecchi, the popular comedy of Di Simone, and his Hebrew comedies for that matter, share a common trait with Delaporta's tragicomedy. These dramatists were flexing their artistic muscle against the tide of their time. Each one worked within a framework of what was acceptable but in the content of their plays, tried to post the counter-arguments to the tightening grip of the counter-reformation. Cecchi was much more subtle than Della Porta, and neither would have been too comfortable with a place alongside Di Simone, but they operated in broadly the same space and location at the time, which was a very broad space, thanks to the expansion of learning that found part of its expression in a flowering of artistic expression. They initially benefited from the more liberal attitudes of the early Renaissance and the largesse of very wealthy benefactors, but to differing degrees made their own mark in their progression of the Renaissance and the development of theatre in more challenging times. Alongside them stood many whose work, and in many cases whose name, is now lost. The specifics that I've detailed over the last three episodes are only a small portion of the output. In this period, theatre was a very popular pastime, particularly for carnival and other special secular or religious occasions, and as entertainment for the court. The commission of these events was the bread and butter for professional playwrights and academics and polymaths who also chose to try their hand at the theatre. We might regard their work as rather unoriginal now, but for a few at the top of their game, the theatre could be a route to superstar status, cultural recognition and great wealth as long as you stayed on the right side of your patron and, more often than not, the church. Next time, before we move on from the initial phase of the Renaissance, I'm going to take a more detailed look at an Italian Renaissance comedy, so we can see exactly what made them work for their contemporary audience and so popular in their time. While you wait for that, how about joining the Facebook group or following us on Twitter? I update both with details about what's coming up on the podcast and post occasional theatre and history-related stuff. On the Patreon feed, the series based on the details of Henslow's diary continues. In the latest episode, I take a look at the Rose Theatre itself, home for a time to Henslow and the Admiral's men. Excavations in the 1980s mean that this is one of the best understood Elizabethan playhouses, 
which coupled with the diary means that we can get a really good sense of what the theatrical experience there was like. In the same episode, I also tried to get to grips with what the financial numbers given in Henslow's diary really mean, in terms of audience numbers and the popularity of individual plays. You can get all of this and more at patreon.com slash thoetp for a small monthly fee. There are now 25 additional audio episodes out there on the Patreon feed, which you get instant access to as soon as you join up. If that's all a bit too much, but you would still like to show some appreciation for what I'm doing, you can just make a small regular or one-off donation just to say thanks. It all helps me keep the lights on and the garret warm here, and I'm very grateful for any and all contributions. Alternatively, please just spread the word about the podcast to anybody you think would be interested. If you heard the story Dancing Dan's Christmas that I put out on Christmas Eve, you can now see details of my attempt to make the Tom and Jerry cocktail that the story swims in on the website. So just go to www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com and find the blog page. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 